verses 12 through 18, chapter 2 of Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's true, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out your mouth. And just as we need physical sustenance, we need spiritual sustenance to keep us strong, to help us run this race and finish well. Feed us today through your word, God. Build us up, strengthen us for the work you've given to us. In your son's name, amen. So today, um, we're going to look at verses 12 through 18, which serves as Paul's conclusion to a thought or theme that he he began way back in verse 27 of chapter 1. After Paul expresses his gratefulness for the church's continuing support of him while he is in a Roman prison, he turns his attention to a growing concern he has regarding their congregation. Namely, Paul is concerned about their unity. The church uh, has been doing well. Overall, Paul is very encouraged by them. Uh, But he knows that the clouds of discord are always threatening. It is a perennial problem for every church. In the case of the church of Corinth, divisions and factions were its defining mark. Now, that's not the case with Philippi. They are a relatively united church. However, the best medicine is always preventative. And if you catch things early, they tend to be much easier to rectify. And there is a problem on the horizon. In chapter uh, 4, verse 2, Paul says, I urge Yoya and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He tells the Philippians to help these women resolve their issues. So there's some sort of growing division between these two women, and division is contagious. It spreads and it catches. Believe it or not, a dumb argument between two women can grow from a little flicker into a raging fire that burns down a whole church. Paul doesn't want to see that happen to this church uh, that's doing so well. Uh, He doesn't want to see it fall to division. He wants to head it off at the pass, snuff it out while it's small, or as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. I always thought he was saying nip it in the bud. Nip in the butt. It's really uncomfortable. Nip it in the bud. That is why he spends all these verses calling them to be united. In verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's calling, pleading, and urging that the Philippians maintain unity. That means that they will have to put themselves last and others first. Most divisions are the product of selfishness. 
Our children are a great illustration of this human reality. Me first, right? Or teenagers, shotgun, right? It's the teenage version of me first. And of course, there, there is the battles fought over who gets to play with what toy. Uh, kids don't take to sharing naturally. It's quite the opposite, actually. We don't teach kids, we don't have to teach kids to disobey and do bad, okay? They, they're good at it naturally. I recall a conversation with one of my sons who would not share a toy with a house guest. I don't recall which son it was, uh, but I do remember his response when I told him you have to put others first. He said, I know, it's just really hard. <laughs> and it is. Unity requires selflessness, but selflessness is hard to come by because it requires humility. Thankfully, humility isn't hard to come by, despite what you might think. It's quite easy. It's all a matter of comparison. A moderately in-shape guy looks like an Olympian when he's surrounded by a bunch of -of out-of-shape slobs. It'd be easy for him to get a big head. However, you stick that same guy in a gym full of professional athletes, and he'll begin to be insecure about his physique. This is what we do as humans. We compare ourselves to each other, uh, to one another, to establish a sort of worldly pecking order. Paul doesn't allow for that. He says, compare yourself to Christ. That is a comparison that will always produce humility. Always. He calls their attention to the attitude of Christ demonstrated in his incarnation. Incarnation means his taking on to flesh, coming down to earth. He, being in the form of God, forewent the privileges of deity or divinity and took on the form of a servant. He came down and lived among us in this curse-ridden world. Not only that, he died on the cross in the service of others to bring glory to God. Compare yourself to that. That is our master, and no servant is above his master. But Paul doesn't stop with Christ's humiliation. He turns to his exaltation. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess this reality. He is seated right now on his throne at the right hand of God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. You aren't a big deal. Get a grip. He's a big deal. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. So Paul wants them to be united, and that only will happen when they're humbled, and that will happen as they consider the humility and majesty of Jesus Christ. But this isn't even an end in itself. There's a further uh, purpose to this humble unity to which he's calling the Philippians. And that's why verse uh, 12 starts with, so then, which is translated in the ESV as therefore. Remember, what is a therefore? Therefore, a basic hermeneutical interpretive question. Uh, It all connects. Humble unity is good soil. It allows for spiritual fruitfulness to take off. And that is what Paul is after. He wants them to be a church that grows and bears much fruit. So Paul now lays out three fruits that should accompany and ultimately result from this humble unity. Growth and godliness, a good testimony, and encouraged leaders. Those are the three fruits he points out. So first, growth and godliness. Paul uses a beloved, uh, use of beloved, again, emphasizes the intimacy between Paul and his congregation. Pastors aren't just preachers. This is a very common thing down in the South. They'll say, who's your preacher, right? 
And so you're basically defining him by just speaking, right? Um, pastors are shepherds. That's what that word means, shepherd. They live with people so they can be an aid to the people, just like a shepherd lives with sheep. How can we help people we don't know? That's why this whole idea of like online churches, asinine, is insane. Sure, there are general admonitions that are helpful. But from Paul's example, we can infer that a pastor should be known by his congregation and a congregation should be uh, known by its pastor. This is one reason we're so excited to move into our, our new home in Batavia. We close on it tomorrow. We'll be like five or six minutes from our home. And many of you have already had us in your homes. And we are looking forward to having you into our home, right? Breaking bread, eating food, very intimate. Can't wait. He needs, uh, a pastor needs to know his people so he can address their specific situations. Sin is common to all, but not all sins are as pronounced in a particular group, right? Like, uh, you know, if I have a bunch of rich folk in front of me and a bunch of poor folk in front of me, I'm going to change how I talk. I'm going to craft a message to the people in front of me. And that's exactly what the apostles do. You look at Colossians and Ephesians, it's interesting to compare the two. They have a very similar outline. Some people actually think that he used the outline to to create the two different letters. But he'll take the same basic teaching and apply it differently. The Colossians are into weird stuff. Weird stuff. It's like Jewish mythology and angel worship and all sorts of Greek philosophy. It's just weird heresies. A lot of heresies are like dogs, right? Dogs are covered in all different types of fleas. And this is the flea version of teaching. And you'll see he'll apply it in Colossians one way and Ephesians another because he's dealing with the people before him. You need to know your people. That's my main issue with mega churches and video venues. How big is too big? And the answer is simple. Whenever the church can't function as a church, it's too big. Whenever pastors become celebrities who are above their people and have no real interaction in their lives, that is a problem. But it isn't a problem for Paul uh, because he knows them. He's deeply connected, even from a distance. How much more should this be the reality of the relationships that God surrounds us with? We should know each other. He says, just as you have always obeyed. That is the issue Paul has in the forefront of his mind in these verses. And continued obedience, right? People think obedience is legalism. That's crazy, right? That's just crazy. It's not. Like the gospel establishes the law in our life. The gospel makes us want to obey. The Philippians have a good track record, and yet Paul continues to exhort them. Many finish poorly who started well. I turn uh, 41 tomorrow. It's my birthday. And... We are still relatively young compared to things. I don't really care about age. It doesn't matter to me. Um, my mom tells me she's not old. I'm like, how? Like, when is old? She's like 75. I'm like, mom, that's when people die. Um, that's when you're dead. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing, though. You spend time in this world, and you see people start out well that you never thought would fall away. But they do. And that's why we need constant exhortation. Constant. He wants them to continue to obey as they have. He says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here Paul describes the quality of their obedience. 
Their Christianity isn't some man-pleasing sham. They don't just obey when Paul is around monitoring their behavior. They know God sees all. Paul laid a foundation, and they built on it. Which brings us to this much-abused phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Roman Catholics and even some Protestant sects claim that this is proof that Christians are justified by a combination or mixture of faith and works. And it's right there, right? Work out your salvation. How can you even deny it? Well, there's some obvious problems with this that are made clear by the preceding phrase in verse 13. But even just looking at this particular phrase by itself, we can see that this isn't saying our works play a part in our justification. Words matter, justification. First, it's clear that the Philippians already possess the salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Their salvation is something they already have and are simply are working it out. After all, Paul wrote this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And then in verse 6, chapter 1, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. They're believers. They are already in Christ. Second, there is a difference between justification and salvation. This is where a lot of issues arise. Justification is part of our salvation. An uh, indispensable part, but a part nonetheless. Now, here's your $20 phrase, ready? There is the ordus ludus. It's a Latin phrase that means order order of salvation. The ordus ludus is a theological doctrine that deals with the logical sequencing of the benefits of redemption as we are united to Christ, which are applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So it's a logical sequence. Some of these things happen all at once. Um, some of them happen in, in, a, in a chronological order, but the order of salutis is a way to explain what happens in salvation. You have been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved, right? All the tenses. Some of these things, again, all at once, others unfold throughout an individual's life. So election and predestination. People always ask, do you believe in predestination? Yes, I read the Bible. It says you're predestined. So If you don't believe in predestination, you don't believe in the Bible. Now, we might have to define what it means, but it's definitely in there. So first, election and predestination. Then there's a gospel call. Like the word goes out. Then there's an inward call that responds. That inward call is the work of the Holy Spirit. Then there's regeneration, which is another way of saying being born again. And then there's conversion. That's faith and repentance, where you trust it, where you confess your faith, and then you repent. Then there's justification. Justification is a change in status, not in nature. Before God, he declares you innocent. That's what it means to be justified. Then there's sanctification. That's the working out of these realities in your life, becoming more like Jesus. And then finally, glorification, where everything's finished at the end of the age. We have a brand new body that's not broken like the one you have. It's all made perfect in the the world that is to come. Now, you might not know what all these things mean. It's okay. That's the beauty of the faith. All right, this is a problem that the church has. Is everyone feels like they have to pretend to know what they're talking about. Right? Don't be that guy. Be humble. Like One way I've learned so much is if I don't know what something means, I will straight up say, I don't know what that means. Like, you know, so you know what I'm talking about. Then you say, I have no clue what you're talking about. I don't know what that means. And then you will know. You will know. 
I want us to be able to be accessible to as many people that come to this church as possible. But I also want to be able to teach you guys things and learn. And not like we're not trying to talk down. We're all in process. We're all learning. We need to know our theology. We need to learn a couple new words along the way because they help us have good conversations and understand what the Bible is teaching. Um, I am still learning and I will be my entire life. The Bible is deep, right? So anything you've learned, someone taught you. Now, salvation can be referred to the whole thing, the entire ordu salutis, or just part of it. In verse 12, salvation is referring to the outworking of regeneration and justification, the outworking of being born again and declared innocent before God. In other words, it's talking about our sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Well, it's the forgotten doctrine in the church. It's a doctrine that no one teaches anymore, because as soon as you teach it, people cry legalists. And no one wants to be called a legalist, but I think I can deal with it. Um, so here's what the Shorter Catechism, uh, which is from, was written way back in 1647. It's a really helpful way of understanding doctrine. The Shorter Catechism explains it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Note, it is a work of God's free grace. That's exactly what's said in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All of salvation is the work of God, even sanctification. Calvin puts it this way. It's a long quote, but I'll summarize it in a second. This is the true engine for bringing down all haughtiness. This is the sword for putting an end to all pride. When we are taught that we are utterly nothing and can do nothing except through the grace of God alone. I mean supernatural grace, which comes forth from the spirit of regeneration. For consider as men, we already are and live and move in God. But Paul reasons here as to a kind of movement different from the universal one. Let us now observe how much he ascribes to God and how much he leaves to us. There are in any action two principal departments, the inclination and the power to carry it into effect. Both of these things he ascribes wholly to God. What more remains to us as a grounds of glory? Nor is there any reason to doubt that this division has the same force as if Paul expressed the whole in a single word. For the inclination, or desire, is the groundwork. The accomplishment of it is the summit, or the building brought to completion. Hence, he teaches that the whole course of our life, if we live aright, is regulated by God, and that too, from his unmerited goodness. Now, let me summarize that. Paul is saying, we are to work out our salvation, knowing that God has enabled, by his free grace, us to die unto sin. So you're dying unto sin. You're mortifying it. And live unto righteousness. There's new life springing up in you. He's calling them to keep growing in godliness. To work at it. Not to earn your salvation, but to honor the God who has saved you. We do this with fear and trembling. In other words, we are to do it with a sober seriousness. Knowing that this is what God has saved us to. So give yourself to the means of grace. How God builds grace, works things out in your life. The prayer, Bible. Uh, what we call the sacraments or a visible word. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. We'll start taking the Lord's Supper here when we have membership. Um, 
and the fellowship of the believers. Like we need each other. That's how you work out your salvation. That's how you grow in it. If you're not growing, it's because you're not praying. You're not in God's word. And people say, oh, so you're saying that's how I'm saved. No, I'm saying that's how you grow. That's what I'm saying. And if you are saved, right, if there's fire, there'll be smoke. There will be the smoke of works in your life. Now, the next fruit is a good testimony. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. How many, is that your life verse? Is that anyone's life verse? Like a, like an eagle or a mountain, some beautiful nature and do all things without, uh, you know, grumbling and disputing. I'd hate that painting on my wall. I'd make me mad. Like, get rid of that thing. It's too convicting. DSV translates grumbling as complaining. But I think it's a bad translation. Grumbling is, is much superior because it better captures the meaning of the Greek here. Paul isn't referring to the vocal, or excuse me, Paul isn't referring to the vocal airing of malcontents, but rather uh, the root of it in our hearts. In other words, some of us have enough control to keep from our tongues from declaring what is in our hearts, but that's not enough. So some of you keep it to yourself. You're quiet, uh, but but there's a grumbling, right? God doesn't just care about our actions, but our attitudes. He calls us to thankfulness, gratitude, and contentment. Now, this is an attitude where someone only uh, can see how they have, excuse me, grumbling is an attitude where someone can only see how they've been slighted or are somehow missing out in life. You know people like that? There's a, the, that real annoying actress, Brie Larson can't stand her right she's terrible and she i watched this video where she was doing uh a interview with chris hemsworth that plays thor and all these guys from mcu and every time someone made a comment towards her she took it as an attack it was really strange you type in uh charisma on command brie larson you'll see it but she always uh, very defensive like even a compliment came across as an insult right that's this sort of person they're always on the attack it's very insecure. They're not uh, resting at all. They're uh, always, always grumbling, always feeling like they don't have enough credit, right? Don't be that. Be that guy. Put that away. Also, put away disputing. Now, this isn't talking about contending for the faith. There are fights that we must engage in. Christians must argue and tear down the lies of the world. Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. The word contend here literally means struggle upon appropriately. We must engage in principled combat, wrestle and fight for the faith, the truth of God's word. It's under attack constantly from without, which I think everyone believes, but also from within. A lot of the problems in the New Testament are coming from false teachers in the church. There are bad people in the church. We have to come to terms with that. It's really hard for us. Like I saw the the evangelicals for Biden, pro-life evangelicals for Biden said, uh, we can't believe it. Biden didn't honor his promise to us. Right? You're like. Well, yeah, it's like, you remember the, uh, the frog and the scorpion? The scorpion gets in the back of the frog and he takes him across the other side to the, the pond and the scorpion, you know, stabs the, the frog. And the frog's like, why did you do that? He's like, I'm a scorpion, 
Right? Like, why did he? Yeah, he's, of course he did that. Right? How naive would you have to believe that? But I tell you, Christians are naive when they act like there aren't false teachers in the church. Now, false teachers don't always look like false teachers. Wolves in sheep's clothing is what Jesus says. So we have to work towards uh, discerning. And sometimes there's tussles in the church, and some of you, your sensitive souls, have a hard time with it. I would just say, don't read that stuff. But it has to happen. There has to be that sort of um, combat. To not dispute with those who twist and attack God's word is to be unfaithful. It is, it is uh, incumbent on pastors and ministers and elders to go after false teaching. It's a command in Scripture. They don't do it. It's like a cop not enforcing the law. That makes them corrupt. How do we get to the situation we're in now? Pastors not being pastors. So what is Paul talking about then? Well, what this is talking about is a vocalized, nitpicking, fault-finding sort of attitude. It's talking about bickering. It's talking about being quarrelsome, being given to brawls and contention, inclined to petty fighting easily irritated or provoked to contest. It's infighting about pointless or peripheral things. It's okay to disagree. It's okay. We don't have to align on all our preferences, opinions, and every doctrine. It's fine. You don't have to. You know? It's like hearing people argue about what's the greatest band of all time or what's the best flavor of ice cream. Grow up. Seriously. Um, And then there's other doctrines that people divide churches over that are so peripheral. That's what this is talking about. Not always arguing. I used to go to this Bible study when I first became a Christian. And uh, I would always bring up someone I had was learning something from. I remember I'd bring up Billy Graham. Do you know Billy Graham believes this? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And I'd bring up this teacher. Did you know that teacher believed this? Every time this guy that came, anyone I mentioned, he would tell me something wrong with them. Right Now, in retrospect, a lot of those things he said were true. What was interesting to me is he was just always fault-finding. That's all he ever wanted to talk about, what's wrong with everybody. right? And they, and they think that's being discerning. you know. But his life was pretty un, unimpressive, to be frank. And uh, there was a lot of cracks to, to see in his own life. And I think it was a, a way to be proud and prop himself up. It's a defense mechanism to keep people on their toes, always talking about what's wrong with other people instead of like how we can grow in holiness. Disputing wears people out, right? I've told people that. You are tiresome. You are very tiresome. This is a hard relationship. It sucks the joy out of friendship and fellowship. Learn when to back off. Develop discernment so you know whether you're contending for the faith or disputing over debatables. You have to learn. Like, I, I don't have a sheet that tells you exactly everything. This is part of maturing in the Lord, right? I, I had to do a lot because I, uh, I can dispute over things at times. And I'm less given to it at this stage of my life. Um, but, yeah, I used to like to fight about everything. It's, it can be fun, but also fleshly. So learn. Now, the reason we should put these things away is because one of the best apologetic to a lost world is a joyful, united church. What is an apologetic? It's a formal defense or justification of something such as a theory or a religious doctrine. In this case, Christianity. Joy is a Christian apologetic. Listen to Paul. So he tells them to put away uh, grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent 
Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Our generation, crooked and perverse. Among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The whole world grumbles. The whole world fights over stupid things. The whole world is discontent, therefore chases after crooked and perverse things in an attempt to satisfy that which only can be satisfied by God. And here we are, as representatives of Christ, happy, full of joy because of Jesus. That is a light that shines forth in a dark world. It calls attention to the word of life that is the gospel, which we hold fast. Christians have been freed from sin. They have the promise of help in this life on the way to paradise forever and ever. We should be joyful. It's an integral uh, part of our testimony before this world. Put aside complaining and disputing. Putting it aside demonstrates the reality of the gospel in our life, that we are children of God. But you, you know, the CC preaches the gospel and use words if necessary. Well, the, the word gospel means good news, and news is words. So you, words are always necessary. It's just a silly statement. But uh, what we preach should be demonstrated in our life. If the gospel is a word of power, and it is, that power should be increasingly present in your life. So demonstrate uh, by not complaining and disputing. Look, the whining and complaining coming from conservative Christians right now is shameful. Trump lost. He isn't going to magically become president again. Didn't happen this week because it's not real. Stop going down the weird YouTube rabbit hole, man. It's a guy, it's literally people in their basement. You know? Yes, there was intense election corruption. Yes, Joe Biden is terrible. Yes, Kamala Kamala, whatever, Harris, is terrible. Yes, the Equality Act is terrible. Yes, their policies are wicked and dangerous. Yes, yes, yes. It's all true. But what are you going to do? Just complain and whine online and label it an awareness campaign? I've worked in marketing my whole life. I hate awareness campaigns. It's a way for us to get your money and not ever show any metrics. I promise you. Awareness campaign is a way to label our complaining and disputing as righteousness. We can't do that. We must do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look, our hope is in Jesus. We've had our time to mourn over this sham election. Now it's time to gird up our loins and joyfully get to work. We need to shine as lights in this dark time. My favorite thing to do when people tell me everything that's wrong is, uh, what are you going to do about it, man? What are you going to do about it? Oh, that's so terrible. I agree. It's terrible. Are we just talking or are we going to do something? What what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? The third fruit is encourage leaders. Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul's made an investment in the Philippians. He's labored hard, and he wants to see it come to something. He's joyfully poured his life out like a drink offer, offering in worship to God for the service of their faith. He wants it to count. He wants his labor to matter. I always tell people that the biggest difficulty in ministry, in a vocational sense, at least for me, but I hear this from a lot of other pastors, is the lack of solid ministry metrics. 
how do you know if you're doing a good job? How do you know? In landscaping, you have a tree to plant and you plant it. You have a yard to mow, and then you look back, you get those nice little white lines, put the diamonds on it. It's beautiful. Uh, or you have a rock walkway to build. You know, I love when you spray it off with the hose, and it's just gleaming in the sun. Uh, you can visually see it change as you make progress. And a time comes when you can take satisfaction in a job completed. Just look at what you've done. In sales, you have goals. You can track them through the month. You can see where you are year uh, over year. You can quantify and qualify the fruit of your work often. It is, however, very difficult to see the fruit of your work in ministry. A lot of ma- metrics are deceiving. Your, uh, your church might be big because you're unfaithful. You're just telling people what they want to hear. It might be big because God's word's powerful and he's blessing it. Right? You have to, like, search your heart and ask. You know, maybe you had a lot of baptisms because you dropped, like, your baptism requirements. Maybe you have a lot of new members because you don't have any membership requirements. Uh, maybe it's because God's blessing it. You know, you, it's hard to know. Um, you'll have conversations with someone or a counseling session, and they tell you, oh, thank you. This is, this is very helpful. This, this has changed my life. And then they just leave your church, and you never hear from them again. All right? M and I joke, the more excited someone is about uh, a church the first time they come, the more likely you'll never see them again. It's just true. Oh, this is amazing. Oh, this guy's not coming back, you know. So, you know why that is? It's really simple. It's because people that decide on a church for the right reason are critical of it and trying to make an informed decision. That's that's maturity. That's a good sign. You'll preach a sermon and it'll seem like a real stinker, right? A total lemon that fell flat. Like on Monday, a pastor feels like a quarterback that threw like five interceptions, even if he did it a lot of times. It's just you pour yourself out and you think, man, why did I say that? Why did I go off script? Now I'm going to get emails about that, right? And then some years later, a young man will tell you or a young woman will tell you that that sermon is when they decided to get serious about following the Lord. You know, it's just because God blesses his word. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, So it's impossible to know what's going on half the time. So you do it on faith. You do it on principle. Because the short-term metrics are unreliable. In time, you see a good return, but it can take a long time, and it can be discouraging. Pastors will leave the church this year. 2020 wore a lot of them out. A lot of divided sessions, a lot of hard decisions. A lot of them are going to leave because they're discouraged. And in Hebrews, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. A pastor wants the same thing a parent wants for a child, people to do well, to grow, to flourish in the Lord. So obey the Lord. Pastors delivers delivers uh, God's word for your souls. And I have to answer to God. Our elders that we'll have um, in this church will have to answer to God for you. And that's why Paul concludes, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Are you going to spend your life on something? I always tell people, like, how many kids we have. They go, whoa. And I always say, well, you're going to spend your life on something, right? Um, Why not kids? Uh, I'm honored that I get to spend my life 
on you, helping you, being a blessing to you. This is a great privilege and one that I don't take lightly. It's a joy. I love what God's doing in this church. To see God work in people's life, uh, it's amazing. Look back to when you first got serious and where you're at now. How has God changed you? Look at the fruit of humility he's producing in your life. I mean, praise God for that. Such an encouragement. That's what Paul wants to see. I, I want to see fruit. I want to know all the work, all the prayer, all the stress was for God's glory and your good. So rejoice and bear the fruit of humility.